with inviting you to relax, just to let your body and mind and hearts relax, and to be here, to pay attention to what it's like to be here, and just sense being held in compassion, that this field of compassion that we've created in this room is holding each of us. And as you do that, bring an awake and curious attention to your experience. As Gil was talking this morning, to notice the the flavor of awareness that's here. What is your experience being held in? And how is it changing as you listen and as you receive? And to be aware of the times that you may be rejecting your experience and the times you may be allowing and the flow between those two. So just to explore that as you listen this evening. Last night, Gil gave us this um, wonderful analogy of all the layers on the floor that we accumulate in our lifetimes. And um, as I listened to that, I was kind of grossed out by the sticky beer. (laughs) And um, I preferred this more um, refined example that I read about, and some of you have probably read, of the Golden Buddha. And many years ago, I think it was in the 50s, they were um, building a new road in Bangkok and a temple. um, It was going through a temple and they had to move this huge clay Buddha. And it required scaffolding and so forth to move it. And so they moved it um, for this and it rained very heavily that night. And so the abbot went out in the middle of the night and pulled off the tarpaulin to kind of make sure the Buddha was okay. And he saw a glimmer of gold and began to chip away and revealed this gold Buddha, this enormous gold Buddha that had been hidden there for a very long time since an invasion much earlier from the north when the monastery had been invaded and the monks, knowing that they were about to be invaded, had covered their gold, precious gold Buddha with clay. And so all the monks were killed. But the clay Buddha remained until the 1950s when they discovered it was pure gold. And so we're a bit like that too. We're, we're, our process is uncovering and removing the clay to reveal the gold of our Buddha nature underneath. So if you like that analogy better than... <laughs> It's an offering. (laughs) So what we're doing here is we have been all week undergoing this process of of purifying and gently removing and um, exploring the layers as we begin to get glimpses of the floor beneath or of the gold beneath. And that's a process that we've been undergoing all week. Maybe you may have felt that I didn't see any gold. I didn't catch a glimpse of the bare floor underneath. 
but not to underestimate the practice you've been doing all week. I have a very dear friend, a family member, who sat a month long a few years ago and came back and said, you know, I didn't have any wonderful experiences and it was a very ordinary retreat. Um, And it didn't seem very significant to him. But over the weeks that followed, he realized that there was a softness, an openness, a lightness in how he viewed his life and a contentment. And so you just don't know how this is penetrating and healing and transforming. So be prepared for possibility um, as you move back out into the world. Others of us, after we leave, maybe we've had glimpses, and then all of a sudden we notice a couple of weeks after we're home that there's beer all over the floor again. (laughs) (laughs) Or lumps of clay, and we don't know how they got there. (laughs) And so what I'd like to talk about tonight a little bit is what we can do to prevent the clay and the beer (laughs) coming back again and how we can gradually continue this process. And really, that's the teaching of the four wise efforts. And I love the teaching of the four wise efforts because it includes and incorporates so many of other parts of the Buddha's teachings. For me, it incorporates the Four Noble Truths, the foundations of mindfulness, and so many of the other beautiful teachings. And it's very simple. The Buddha saw that there were ways that we thought and acted and so forth that led to happiness, and there were ways that led to suffering. So the first two efforts, first two wise efforts, are about um, understanding, recognizing the, the things that cause all the layers, and then abandoning them. So how do we recognize them? What do we do to prevent them accumulating once they're there? So it's guarding against the stuff accumulating, and then once it has, what do we do to help release it? So that's the first two. And the second two efforts um, are cultivating and maintaining the beautiful qualities of mind and heart that lead us to liberation and freedom and bring us such comfort and stability. Sometimes what they're, so they're all the beautiful qualities and capacities that lead us and help us live skillfully in the world. Sometimes we can get so busy pulling off the layers and examining them and getting lost in looking at them that we miss the glimpses of the beauty that's already there. It's easy to do that. We're seeking for the truth, but we're so lost in looking at all this stuff that we miss it. One retreat, I had this beautiful image of this, because I am very visual, of this bulldog sort of, sort of marching through my awareness, sniffing all over the floor. You know? And then I sort of realized, hey, look, it's beautiful out here, but the bulldog is so busy rooting out you know, and licking the beer off the floor <laughs> that it didn't notice um, the beauty around. And so we need to cultivate the qualities intentionally. So that's what I'd like to explore tonight. So what we're doing, and what the Buddha instructed, was to incline the mind 
whatever we incline the mind towards, that will become our way, he said. A scientific way of talking about it is morphic resonance. There's a resonance that comes when we keep, when something happens, it's more likely to happen a second time. So it's like, what seeds do we want to grow in our garden? What are we planting? So it's exploring that. How can we bring balance? So this is what the four wise efforts do. They help us bring balance and they help us be able to live in the world and act in the world in wise ways. We all know of the pain that comes from our inner oppression and how when we don't heal and work with that, it turns and gets projected outwards in the world. And all of us know that there are tough times in the world right now because um, of this imbalance that's happening in so many people. So let's talk a little bit more about these in, um, in more detail. The first of the wise efforts is to guard against. Um, in the suttas, it talks about preventing the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states. So that sounds like a mouthful. But really, it's just recognizing and knowing um, What are the states that lead to sufferings? We have to recognize what are these. And it's as though there's an underground stream in our consciousness that's waiting for certain conditions to pop up to the surface. So certain things will trigger it, and there it is. And these, um, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it as store consciousness. Some of these seeds got planted when we were very small, sometimes even before we were born. Sometimes they get sown as we grow older and they get watered by certain behavior patterns. And that can be what grows in our garden. So wise effort is doing what we can to prevent them arising, guarding against that. What are we guarding against? All the difficult mind states, basically some form of greed, aversion, or confusion. Some form of one of those. It could be obsessive thinking, it could be judging, it could be getting caught in sense desires, whatever it is that's leading us suffering in our lives. So we get to know what our particular triggering patterns are, and that's what you've been doing here this week, starting to understand them, seeing how it is that you get caught and tripped up. What states have happened for you today that have caused you suffering. Each of us have had them, even if they've been little ones. They come and they go. So how do we guard against them? Obviously, the most important one is mindfulness, recognizing that they're there, knowing that they can occur, using mindfulness to stabilize our attention, using something that we can put our attention on that's wholesome and that's um, beneficial so that we're protected in that way. The rope of mindfulness that Shada talked about. We use the rope of mindfulness to help us stay in the present moment, be here, so we don't get lost in the past or, or the future. 
There's a lovely um, analogy I like. I read it in, um, I think it was the New York Times, about strategic allocation of attention. And the study um, they did on children, I think, around the age of three, because they were looking at how old um, does the ability to delay gratification come? How old does, do you, can, does that start to happen. And so what they did was they put these children in a room with double mirrors and they gave them a plate of marshmallows. And the children were told, if you just take one marshmallow and no more, there'll be a really wonderful reward for you. And so, of course, most of the children took one and then they couldn't help it. They ate another one (laughs) and another one. But there were a very few children who did interesting things. One child hid under the table. (laughs) very smart another child closed her eyes and sang a song and then a third child tore around the room you know making noises so they all figured out helpful ways non-destructive ways (laughs) of delaying gratification they were able to be with wanting and not get overcome by it at that very young age. So we can do it too. (laughs) So next time in the hall you see something. (laughs) And that brought to mind um, another similar kind of example. Um, I had a, a friend who was really, really caught in self-judgment and guilt about something that she had done that she was having difficulty forgiving herself for. She had made a decision that had led to um, a really unpleasant and difficult consequence for her. And so whenever she sat, she would go through the story over and over again. And around the time this was happening, my, my dog had to have a growth removed from his side, so he had stitches. And you know what happens, many of you who have pets, when a dog has stitches, they can't help but lick it. And so he was wearing this cone. And so I said to her, what you need is a guilt cone. <laughs> and that if you <laughs> sit with your guilt cone, you won't be able to bite yourself. <laughs> and so she thought this was a great idea. And then we decided that what we should do is that outside the meditation hall, we should have different colors of cones (laughs) for different issues. (laughs) So that metaphorically, (laughs) you're setting an intention. Biting myself isn't helpful. (laughs) And what analogy can I use to restrain this? but in a soft way. Because the important thing about the guarding against is that we're not doing it out of aversion. The attitude that we're doing it with is of kindness and of curiosity. What can I do that will help me get caught in this, not get caught in this? The Buddha advised avoiding, and he told the monks to avoid wild elephants, stumps, cesspools, open sewers, cliffs, and associating with bad friends. <laughs> so, <laughs> because those are all triggers, right? <laughs> and so, 
you know, we all know what our particular elephants and sewers are, you know, and we can, we can avoid them. It's skillful not to put ourselves in situations where we'll be exposed to things that are really triggering, especially if we're feeling vulnerable. And so this is just wise discrimination, wise effort. The old patterns go very deep, and um, not to, to get into self-blame when we get triggered again. We can't choose what arises, but we can choose how we perpetuate it. Because um, often there's a single negative mind moment, and we jump on it, and we start repeating it and going over and over it. And that's the piece where there is choice. That's the piece where you need your cone to just restrain it for a moment. So suppose you haven't been able to restrain it, and there you are, you're caught in it. So then the next wise effort is abandoning, learning how to abandon. Often, because we don't live in a culture that, where we're trained to guard against difficult states, we're not, we, we don't have the tools to, to do this except in aversive ways. And so this practice is so valuable in learning ways of non-harming to abandon the difficult states. So we recognize that they're there, that's the first step. And then we start getting to know what do their energies feel like. So for example, the energy of wanting often feels like a leaning or desire. It might feel like a pulling towards. You know, you can feel, I want that. Or there's a sort of of a holding feeling in the body. Aversion often is a pushing away feeling, you know, a resistance, a movement away, a rejection. And delusion has that kind of running around in circles feeling. You know, you're trying to make a decision or get it right or whatever it is. And there's a feeling of, of kind of um, stuckness, of going around and around. So the mind may feel contracted or maybe the mind feels distracted. So we get to know through our mindfulness practice what those different states feel like so that we really get to recognize them earlier and earlier. The sooner you pick it up, the easier it is to abandon it. Someone I was talking to today um, gave a beautiful analogy. Um, you know those um, straw things in, in um, magic kits that you put your fingers in? And if you try and pull your fingers out hard, they get stuck more. And what you have to do is actually just move closer into it for it to release and let go. And it's the same kind of thing. If you move closer and look more carefully, it will release. The more you pull at it, the more tight it gets. So there are um, many different ways that we can work with abandoning, and some of them we've explored this week. The most useful part is to know that this is a mind, just as Gil was talking about, knowing the valence in the mind, to know this is a mind with anger. Just as important to know this is a mind without anger, but to know what is it that's running through the mind right now. And then you can be mindful of the state that's there, not to judge it, but just to know it. When we try and get rid of it, it gets stronger. 
So we stop and be still and we relax and we, as best we can, resolve not to get caught, resolve not to be, to follow it. The other thing I found helpful is each time we, I do find myself caught in something that, oh no, here goes this again, rather than saying, oh no, not this again, it's more, oh, now I have the chance to do this particular pattern differently. So seeing each time as a chance to do it differently rather than to pe- perpetuate the same pattern. Sometimes paying attention to desire, for example, is all that you need to do, to pay attention to the actual quality of desire itself rather than the object that you're wanting. And then you get to see that the wave of desire comes and gets bigger and bigger and passes through. It's not permanent and it's not personal. And it's a relief to feel less driven by the force of desire. We can enjoy sense pleasures, but we're not as driven by them. When we're able to allow the wanting to come and go. And I think um, John talked the other morning about the acronym RAIN, of recognizing, noticing your attitude, are you accepting or rejecting, being interested and curious in what's going on, and then knowing it but not owning it. So that is you, you, that means the not identifying with it piece. Rather than I'm a greedy person, greed is here. Then there's some space for it to move through. And each of us discovers for ourselves what works for us. And um, there are many different examples and techniques in the suttas. Um, but I want to leave myself time to talk for the, about the otherwise efforts, so I'm going to move on. But what it requires is attunement, really recognizing where you are and what's true for you right now. Sometimes it can be really humbling to know, oh, here I am losing it again. Here I am losing it again. This is what's happened. Right now is a moment of losing it. And that's the important piece. Right now is a moment of losing it. And notice the tendency to add all the judgments and how, oh no, again, and everything else. Just this moment. That's all. And we start to recognize also as we do that that the mind states arise out of certain conditions. They're not always there. I like the analogy of clouds arising due to certain weather conditions. And it's helpful to see that just as our mind states arise out of certain causes and conditions, so do other people's. It's like that for all of us. Whether it's anxiety or fear or shame or blame, all of it's coming due to causes and conditions. Joseph Goldstein um, had an image that I like, and that's of clouds being rooted to the earth and emotions being rooted to the earth. In nature, clouds aren't really rooted to the earth, but we root our emotions to the earth, and we root them in different ways. Every time we identify them, we root them, and it's hard for them to pass through. Another way we root them is by um, 
judging, saying they shouldn't be there, condemning them. And another way we root them is by believing the judgments. And so all these are ways that we keep the mind states in place. And so somehow for me, the analogy of seeing, ah, I rooted that cloud, enables the cloud to unroot and um, it abandons itself. So really, the abandoning isn't so much a doing as through mindfulness a releasing. Um, And that's, to me, the the helpful part about the first two wise efforts, because sometimes you can think of it almost like a rejecting way. You know, thou shalt abandon, thou shalt whatever. Um, But it is more a seeing and releasing that, for me, how it works. But as I was saying, it's not just about exploring the icky layers and the difficulties. Um, I was having a really difficult time um, some months ago, and my own inner, inner process and the process in the world was really, I was having, feeling really in struggle and conflict about it. And so a friend did a tarot for me, and I got that card, the five cups. And the five cups, two of them, are, uh, three of them have broken, and the person is looking at them completely forlorn and hopeless and having given up at these broken cups. But behind them, there are two full cups, but they're not looking at those. And so often, we tend to focus on the brokenness. We focus on our own brokenness, or we focus on the brokenness in the world, and that can become all that we see. And it's important to turn our attention to look at the wholeness and the beauty. There's a lovely story um, that I was told by Saki Santorelli, one of the mindfulness teachers, about um, one of their clients who was um, injured in a very serious traffic accident and became um, paraplegic. And his life was really turned upside down, and he was a sculptor. And after a number of years, he put on a show, an, an, an exhibition, and the main piece of work was this huge sculpture of, of like an egg. And it had been broken into many pieces and put together again. And the title was Shattered and Yet Whole. And so it's being able to experience the wholeness that shines through despite the shatteredness. And for me, I had to really acknowledge and fully feel the brokenness before I was able to reconnect and see the beauty and the wholeness again. And sometimes that's what happens. But it is important to turn intentionally towards it. Just as we need to recognize the negative in order, using the words negative, perhaps difficult is a better word. Um, We need to recognize that in order to avoid or abandon it. We also need to recognize all the beautiful and healing qualities in order to develop and cultivate and maintain them. We have to recognize them and look for them. The, The loving-kindness, compassion, the seven factors of enlightenment, um, investigation, wisdom, 
all of the paramis, and there's a, many, many of the Buddha's lists of all of these beautiful qualities, so many of them that help and assist our practice, the five precepts, um, many different ways of being. And they all arise as the obstacles disappear, and as we work through the obstacles, they arise naturally, it's true. Judging reveals compassion. Wanting, as we heal it and transform it, turns into generosity and so forth. But we have to actually intentionally be mindful of them in order for them to start to shine through. We have to get to know how they feel, what they feel like in the body. We tend to focus on the negative a lot in our culture. And so it's important to really get familiar with the positive, to pay attention and to actually recognize, oh, I had a kind moment. Um, There's a lovely cartoon that I like that shows this man who's looking around like that. What was that? What was that? And the next caption is, Bob experiences a pleasant moment. (laughs) Because we're in a hurry and we rush on by, frowning. (laughs) So we need to be present for these, to incline our mind towards our inherent value rather than towards inadequacy. The more familiar we are with these capacities, the more they strengthen and the more they develop. And our mindfulness really is about cultivating this relaxed, open awareness, interested, undistracted, uninvolved, so we can see those capacities so they get clearer and stronger. It's not enough to rely on them to spontaneously arise, unfortunately. At least that's been my experience, with a lot of waiting. So we have to intentionally cultivate them. And so the first of these of the, the, the third of the wise efforts is arousing wholesome mind states which haven't yet arisen. So you've been doing that already here. Each time you returned with kindness was a moment of cultivating mindfulness and loving kindness. Each time you were able to be with a difficult mind state without giving up on yourself you were training in patience and courage. Each time you were able to embrace uncertainty, not knowing, unbearableness, opening the door to your own freedom. So we've been doing that this week already. And we've been training in the trust that we have the capacity to do that. Trust is another of these beautiful qualities. Traditionally, the way we develop them is to reflect on goodness. And I had a lot of trouble with that in the early years of my practice. I remember some teacher saying, reflect on goodness. And I was sort of looking around, goodness, me, what goodness? Because that's often, you know, in, in this culture, how some of us feel. We're used to focusing on what's wrong, and some of us be, believe that we're fundamentally not okay. And the other thing is we're taught that if you focus on goodness, that's conceited. At least that's true in Britain. I don't know how so much about the States. 
But it is in Britain. You know, you don't brag. But this is not about conceit. It's not about saying, I am the great generous one. It's much more about acknowledging that generosity is here and really fully feeling it and allowing it to shine forth. So it's allowing these qualities to shine forth without identifying with them. And the identifying with them actually shrinks them. When we don't identify them, we see that they're universal and they're present in every being. And that's such a beautiful gift. They shine out even more when we're not attached to them. So just close your eyes for a moment and reflect on your past year and appreciate the moments of kindness that you brought into that last year. Perhaps the moments of generosity and sharing. The moments of being there for yourself or for someone else. Or perhaps reflect on a time when you managed not to get caught, when you were in a difficult situation. And to appreciate yourself for that. And just to notice what that feels like in the body, the mind, and the heart. to appreciate those qualities within yourself. The strength or the clear seeing, the discernment. And so it's valuable to do that. And just one last thing, if that was difficult for you and you couldn't really connect with anything, just for a moment, imagine a good friend in front of you looking at you. And they're saying your name and they're saying to me, Adrian, something I really appreciate about you is... Something I really appreciate about you is, and your friend is telling you what they appreciate about you, and you're taking it in. One of the, for me, most helpful of these beautiful qualities is loving-kindness. I think that was the one that I needed the most in my practice. It was bringing an attitude of friendliness to all of my experience. And loving kindness to me meant being able to see really clearly all of the aspects of myself, of how I acted, um, and of others. And the deeper that kind of friendliness is, the more we're able to see our own really difficult patterns. Because we're not afraid of our own judgments. So we're able to be really honest with ourselves. 
and then much more able to be free. I was involved um, in teaching a program um, that was quite difficult for me a number of years ago. And there were people who had conflict with each other. There were all sorts of difficult dynamics going on. And sometimes I didn't handle it as well as I would have liked. And what was helpful to me was to have a stronger and stronger practice in friendliness. So that even if I screwed up, there was still the friendliness there and the ability to come back and say, okay, let's try again. And for me, I was afraid of conflict because of my particular background. It was scary for me. And I would freeze. And I was friendly to the pattern of freezing so that I began to be able to develop the ability of experimenting, taking a step, trying out. Could I help in this conflict? Could I own the own the ways that I was contributing to it? And to be inspired by other people in that group having the same commitment to really look at the ways that they may have been being racist or being exclusive in some way or not clearly seeing someone. And the more there's loving friendliness, the more we are able to own the ways that we cause harm and to not harm ourselves with that knowledge. And that's for me, is what leads to healing. Is that being able to see in the deepest way how it is that we cause harm and how we might be free from harm. One of the teachings that I love um, that the Buddha gave to his son Rahula was that when you're in the middle of, when, when you're about to do an action, think about will it be of benefit to me and to all of those around me or will it cause harm to me and all those around me? And then when you're in the middle of it, is it causing harm or is it causing benefit? Reflect on that. If it is causing harm, you stop doing it. And then at the end, did it cause harm or did it bring benefit? And you don't judge your mistakes. What you do is you say, oh, it caused harm. How can I not do that again? And that to me was um, um, one of the really beautiful qualities, that of compassion, having compassion for our mistakes. And so you might also reflect as you're listening for all the mistakes I made last year, all the things I did that maybe I regret. May I forgive myself. May I be forgiven. Forgiveness is one of the beautiful qualities that helps heal the separations between us. So, this discerning wisdom is also really beautiful. It's having the brightness and the clarity to see clearly exactly how things are without delusion. That's what enables us to act wisely and to also know when our mind is murky. Oh, the mind is murky right now. I don't quite, I'm not able to act clearly. And then you can pause and know what is the murkiness? Is the murkiness that I need to be right in this situation? Is the murkiness because I want approval? 
is the murkiness because um, I want to get back at somebody. So we start to get clear and clearer about what our motivations are. And to see that was kindness. Have I got a fixed view about myself or another person? Shada was explaining beautifully the other night the ways that um, we're having a fresh moment over and over. And to notice what needs to be shed now. What needs to be shed now? And we do that for ourselves. Have I seeing myself in a certain way that isn't useful? Am I seeing this other in a certain way? In that group I was talking about, um, I realized there were a couple of people I was seeing in a certain way based on ways they behaved. And so when I saw them again, I would project that on top of them now, rather than allowing them to be how they are in this moment. And to do that for myself too. So that's a beautiful quality to cultivate, is new beginnings, new beginnings. Can I be with it how it is now? And now? It's a gift we give ourselves and each other. Another of the beautiful qualities, of course, is joy. Taking joy in our experience. Ayakima says you can't get to liberation without going through the gates of joy. And sometimes on a retreat like this, when it's so still in the hall, people can think there's no joy in here. Everyone looks so serious. And yet there is joy. There's joy in the stillness. There's joy in in the insights that we have. But sometimes we miss it if we're not open to receive what's actually here. And so it's letting beauty be, letting it be here, being open to the pleasant, allowing it. Sometimes people think um, that, you know, there's so much focus on not being attached to what's pleasant that there's no allowing of pleasant. And so it's a full allowing, but without attachment. And gratitude, being grateful for, um, for all the things that are happening. I um, was doing some gratitude practice with practices with um, one of my sanghas, and people were exploring, sharing appreciation with each other and with friends. And one of the um, men in our community had gone out to, to lunch with a very old friend. They'd known each other for many, many years and met every once in a while. And so he started telling his friend how much he appreciated their friendship over all these years. And he said, all of a sudden, his eyes started to tear up, and my eyes started to tear up. He said, and then it was too much. (laughs) So I don't know about this. (laughs) And then he told me um, another beautiful story. He'd got a birthday card from his daughter, and in it she'd written um, how much she appreciated and what she loved about him. And when he received the card, he'd just taken it and read it and stuck it on the mantelpiece. And so after this experience, he got home and he actually read it. And he actually took in 
what she was saying to him, the direct experience of her words. And he said his heart opened. And he was able to talk to her in a much more intimate way so that she felt received. And when she felt received, their, um, the generosity went back and forth and there were two hearts that were opened. And so the receiving is just as beautiful a gift as the giving. Thich Nahan says, walk in a way that plants peace and beauty on the earth, as though you're kissing the earth with your feet. And I've heard that many times, but I still love that image when I'm in a rush or a hurry, just to remember that connection with the earth that so often we forget. Just to f- That's another of the beautiful qualities is to open into our connection with all of life, to really fully know that and experience it. In the early years of my practice, um, I really was wanting the truth and seeking and um, striving a lot and also still really caught in wanting to get it right in my life in many ways, wanting to be special, comparing to myself to other people who I saw as brilliant in some way. And then gradually, through the process of my practice, the gold began to shine through. There was less crap on the floor. (laughs) And there was glimmering started to show through. And gradually I I began to see and know that that brilliance was in here. And to have compassion. Oh, all along what I've really been doing is I've been looking for brilliance and I just wanted to come home. And so sometimes our search for that is just a wanting to come home. And I have more compassion for the wanting to get it right the more I felt that that's right here. And of course it gets covered over. But there's a deep knowing and a trust that each of us has that shining. That's there for everybody. And cultivating the beautiful qualities is what gradually begins to bring it out. One of the ways that I found um, in the last couple of years helpful is to really see these as powerful resolves, as though I'm aligning my will with these intentions, and to use it actually frequently. Any intention is like an electrical current. You have to keep it going or it will stop. And so it's not enough to do a wise effort once or twice to cultivate a few drops once or twice, you really have to keep it going. And so I've experimented and I've shared with you a little bit during the retreat. For example, I might say, let the mind be clear of wanting, agitation, and needing. 
Let the mind be clear of resentment and hostility. Let the mind be clear of doubt and confusion. And then, those are the, those are the first two wise efforts. Then the second part is, may the mind be bright, awake, clear. May the mind be filled with friendly feelings. May the mind be filled with compassion. And so we're making those intentions gradually begins to make that become our way. And I found that they started to arise spontaneously. Just doing it on a regular basis, all of a sudden there'd be friendliness when in the past there would have been judgment. All of a sudden, there'd actually be clear seeing where in the past I'd be caught in indecision. Having made up my mind many years ago, I'm an indecisive person. (laughs) I perpetuated that. And all my friends, she's the one who can never make decisions. And so suddenly I thought, wow, it doesn't have to be that way. May the mind be clear and bright and actually incline it that way. And yes, there are tendencies I have to go here, there, and everywhere. But I don't have to follow that. And so it's possible to keep renewing these intentions over and over. And it takes commitment and continuity. Um, A couple of examples... Pablo Casals, at the age of late 90s, was asked, how come you practice over three hours a day? And he said, at last I'm beginning to see some signs of improvement. (laughs) (laughs) And then this other one um, I really like. I was at, um, the Dalai Lama was in Vancouver not that long ago, and there was a panel discussion with Eckhart Tolle, who lives in Vancouver, and... um, Peter Robinson, who's a really well-known educator, and some people from a group called the Blue Man Group that some of you probably know, who are quite wonderful. And so Eckhart Tolle was, was going on about how there'd been a study of, in World Cup soccer, you know, there's a shootout, and that the people, that, the guys that paused before they took the, the, did the goal were the ones who got the goal. You know, and they said, someone else said, yes, but... You know, there's those studies if you have to have 10,000 hours of practice (laughs) in order to perfect anything. Um, And I'm sure you're all familiar with the Malcolm Gladwell book with the 10,000 hours. And so then Peter Robinson leans over and he patted Eckhart Tolle on the knee and he said, Eckhart, he said, even if you paused, even if you had the 10,000 hours of practice, you still wouldn't get the goal. Because it's acknowledging our capacities. We all have different capacities. And sometimes we can set ourselves up by having an expectation that just isn't in alignment with who we are. And it's not that that can't change, but it's just honoring. You know, there are certain things that it's just not what I'm going to do in this life. And to put our attention where we feel we have the energy and the passion and the um, creativity and to align ourselves with what the true value and longing is for me at this time in my life. And some of you put forward those um, in your intentions. 
what is it that I most um, want to connect with this coming year? What do I want to align my will with? And then to make the commitment to, to keep reconnecting with that. And it, it takes patience. It's like drops in a bucket of mindfulness. But it does gradually accumulate. Another analogy I like is um, sometimes these difficult patterns are just like a line on, drawn on water. It doesn't take very much of our energy to realign ourselves. Others of them are like lines drawn in the sand. It takes more effort, more wise effort, to recognize and abandon them. Others of them are like lines etched in stone. And they're, they're something that we may be, get triggered our whole life. And so we need compassion for those ones. Sometimes I feel like some of those are like the Grand Canyon for me. And so it's being able to embrace that with friendliness and humor and compassion. So I'd like to end with this. Um, this is from um, Mingyur Rinpoche. The best part of all is no matter how long you meditate or what technique you use, every practice of the Buddhas generates compassion. Whenever you look at your mind, you can't help but recognize your similarity to those around you. When you see your own desires to be happy, you can't help but see the same desires in others. When you look clearly at your own fear, aversion, (coughs) anger, you see the same arises in others. When you look at your own mind, all the imaginary differences between self and other automatically dissolves, and the ancient prayer of the four immeasurables, that's loving-kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, the ancient prayer of the four immeasurables becomes as natural and persistent as your own heartbeat. So may all these beautiful qualities become as natural and persistent as our own heartbeats. Thank you. So my task is to end with an announcement. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.